We are talking um, about 1 Peter 4, going through this passage of Scripture. So let's turn there. 1 Peter 4, um, verses 12 through 19. And if you don't know what I was talking about, in the middle of communion, the lights all went out in the church, and it went pitch black, and um, the microphones went out and everything. So that is why I share that story, if you weren't there. Um, So here we go. Let's go to verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you were insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of God and of God um, rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in the name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So, if you recall, um, and this is probably what made me paranoid last week, is that a part of of, uh, this, this passage of Scripture is dealing with persecution and suffering in the church. The early church um, had some context for what was to come in terms of suffering as the apostles and followers of Christ experienced much persecution for their faith. We actually walked through the timeline of the key milestones last week of persecution leading up to 64 AD when Peter penned this letter. Peter himself had experienced his own share of difficulties and trials for claiming the name of Jesus. Uh, He called himself a Christian and he was nearing the end of his life which would actually be given over in martyrdom shortly after he penned the letter of 2 Peter. So we also touched on the fact that this is nothing new in post-apostolic church history. The gospel has been an offense to the world from the beginning. So for centuries, Christians have had to endure persecution at the hands of sinful men. And why? It's because of the exclusivity of the gospel. The world, predominantly run by Satan... He is the prince who governs this world, hates the fact that the gospel claims that Jesus Christ is the sole path, that he is the only way, the objective truth, the life, and that it declares that no man can come to the Father but through him. This exclusivity is why so many believers have suffered martyrdom for their faith and had to endure intense persecution through the ages. The exclusivity of the gospel is why the Christian's at the time of this letter's writing by Peter, made them an easy target in the Roman Empire. Um, They were fixed on worshiping their many idols and gods made by their own hands and imaginations. As Christians, the early church would have condemned the Roman Empire's pagan way of thinking. Their entire lifestyle was an abomination to the one true God. This absolute, exclusive nature of the gospel was completely and utterly offensive to them because it was a call to repentance. And that's what the world doesn't like. They do not want to repent of their sins. I literally, while I was studying this um, passage yesterday, um, my wife showed me her phone. She says, hey, look at this quote. And it was something on Instagram. Um, I literally read this yesterday. Um, We were sitting there and I was studying. And I like this. Ten times out of ten, 
the reason people speak out against the Bible is because the Bible speaks out against their lifestyle. It's pretty good, right? Um, that kind of nails it on the head. Ten times out of ten, the reason people speak out against the Bible is because the Bible speaks out against their lifestyle. So the world simply does not want to give up their sin. I think it was fascinating to hear uh, Pastor MacArthur talk about the deconstruction of the Christian faith a few weeks ago. Um, it's really what our modern society is doing as we move further and further into this post-Christian era. Um, why are so-called Christians, Christians abandoning or deconstructing their faith? I think Pastor John summed it up well when he concluded that it's because people don't want to give up their sin and they hate the fact that the Bible and the message of salvation calls them to repentance. If you don't call your sin sin, then you don't need to repent of it. You don't need to repent of it for salvation. And therefore, if you call a sinner and your sin sin, then I, as a Christian, and am intolerant, a hater. I'm judgmental. I should be despised. And that's where this is going. The world does not like us. True Christians should not be in step with the progressive narrative of this age, and we're going against the tide. I read this quote from Spurgeon. He said, "A dead fish." finds no difficulty in floating down the stream. It is only the living fish that can swim against the current. So as the living body of Christ, true believers are looking at some turbulent waters. And because we simply are not going in the direction of the world, we need to be swimming against the current of the modern culture and our eyes fixed on Christ and his word. Um, Pastor John, another quote from him, said, Today, hostility towards Christians who speak out against the culture sins and in defense of the exclusivity of the gospel is on the rise. Now, he actually wrote that in 2004. And I just think of how much, I mean, the word woke wasn't even in the vocabulary then, right? And, and here we have, if you were to put it on a graph, you could probably look at the rise um, in hostility against believers, maybe through the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s, but boy, in the last 10 years, it's just, it's spiked. It is incredible, the hostility against us believers. The world just doesn't like us. They have persecuted and murdered our, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ for 2,000 years, and our message, the gospel, calls for a heart of repentance. And the Romans, as in Peter's time, as well as centuries of pagan, idolatrous worshipers have hated this message. They don't want to give up their sin. They don't want to repent which is why today we have people deconstructing their faith, as John elaborated on. So last week, this is all just kind of our our little intro here. Last week, we talked about the post-Christian society that we are in, and uh, we defined it as um, when Christianity is no longer the dominant civil religion, but has gradually assumed values, culture, and worldviews that are not necessarily Christian. So that's where we're at today. We're in the very midst of that. Well, just a few decades earlier, most people were accepting of general Christian beliefs in terms of a moral barometer. Today, it seems like any time you profess to be a Christian these days, it's met with skepticism, if not outright disdain. There's a rapidly increasing trend of animosity directed at us as believers, Um, those of us who boldly address the societal wrongs and to those who advocate for the unique message of the gospel. This is if people immediately label you as intolerant, exclusive rather than inclusive, judgmental, or just out of touch with the way the world is progressing. Um, I've experienced it myself. Um, I've, I've just seen, the, the, like I said, the peak, um, even in these last 10 years, 
One of the, uh, I shared with you last week that I've been with the Walt Disney Company for 35 years, and I actually retired this Friday after a 35-year career, so I'm excited to get out. But um, yes, thank you very much. Thank you. We'll all throw a party. Um, but uh, I was responsible for bringing the Chronicles of Narnia to Disney back in 2005. And um, at that time, um, this was a great olive branch to the Christian community to, to create this film uh, from the beloved works of C.S. Lewis. And um, I was super excited about it. In fact, um, I guess the history really is, if you, if, you, if you know the history with Disney and Christianity, the Southern Baptists were boycotting Disney back in the late 90s because of same-sex benefits. So when, when I brought the Chronicles of Narnia in, in, it was really kind of an olive branch to the Christian community. And they set up this faith and family, um, uh, I guess, task force to uh, reach out to the faith. What I think was sincere, I think they wanted to get back in step with what um, the Christian community was all about and um, at least provide entertainment that could be trusted for our children. And so they would actually send me out around the world um, to share my testimony at various churches. So on behalf of the Chronicles of Narnia, everybody in the company knew I was a believer. And so I said, hey, Rick, you know, you're a great spokesman for this. Why don't you go out to different churches and kind of help promote the film, but share your testimony, whatever you want to do with these churches, and tell them about the Chronicles of Narnia, that it's coming to a theater near you on June 12th or whatever the date was for 1050 at the box office. So, um, so I was happy to do that. I cannot imagine the company doing that today. You know, it, it's not even a thought. New executives have come in. Um, this idea of extending an olive branch to the Christian community wouldn't even be part of the, the scenario. So, and that's just been within the past 15 years. So I'm seeing firsthand um, that this uh, is that inclusiveness and diversity are at the forefront of the entire social narrative. And the message that we preach is exclusive. And therefore, that's why they wouldn't send me as a Christian out to the world anymore because it's such an exclusive nature of the things that I believe. Even the Chronicles of Narnia, the message within it is exclusive. I'm, I'm sure many of you um, have corporate jobs and you've uh, sat through the DE&I seminars and training. Um, this is a whole new level of employee training and code of ethics where corporations have now adapted to the cr current narrative. And it's crazy how fast it's become the norm. Um, I know John Bates worked for IBM for years. I can't imagine in his days at IBM that they would have a DE&I training seminar um, to ensure that you were including everybody. I mean, right and wrong used to be so black and white back in the day. Um, if Bob needed to use the restroom, then Bob went to the men's restroom, right? But today, if Bob um, is identifying as a woman, he can use the woman's restroom, and we're being told we need to be tolerant of it at a corporate level. It's, it's absolutely insane. Uh, where we are at. These diversity, equity, and inclusion classes are, are meant to help ensure that you don't make anyone feel left out or marginalized no matter what they believe or how they act. The new agenda is to break down the confines of objective truth and accept everyone for who they are, what each individual claims as their own personal version of the truth. It's completely agnostic. Um, most of it is really illogical, to be, to be honest. As you know, it's satanic. And this is where the incoming wave of persecution is going to come from. For if we stand for objective biblical truth, we will not um, be in compliance with the new progressive mandate that we will potentially reap the consequences for by not subscribing to the new order. 
so I've seen all this um, in in my in my years at Disney. Um, I, I've also seen the the mantra to be tolerant for everyone. Christians are perhaps the one group that they don't want to be tolerant of. It's because we preach the message of hope as the one and only way to God. It is a message that is convicting. It's objective and it's exclusive. And as tolerant as they want to teach everyone to be, the narrative is intolerant toward our singular message. So we can see this happening in Rome to some extent as Peter writes this letter. The early Christians were telling the citizens of Rome that these gods you worship, your lifestyle, this entire pagan culture is an abomination to the one true God. Therefore, you need to repent and follow the one and only one, the absolute and exclusive way to get to God. And that way is through his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross as a sacrifice for sin and rose from the dead to offer eternal life through belief in him. This is objective truth. And the world controlled by Satan doesn't like it. And the more and more and more it will hate us for proclaiming the exclusivity of it. So with that long intro, let's jump into 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll take this kind of verse by verse. Peter starts in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for the testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. So last week we looked at this verse and concluded that we need to anticipate persecution. He says, don't be surprised by the persecution as if something strange were going on. This is what you can expect if you claim to be a Christian. We also pulled out the fact that the fiery ordeal could be related to the refinement that persecution brings us, that in faithfully standing for Christ and suffering for um, for him, we are sanctified and purified in the process. We looked at Matthew 5.11 as a reminder. Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. I found this quote. The author is unknown, but I really like what it says. It says, Remember that suffering is not the exception in the Christian life. It is the norm. We are called to bear the cross of Christ, to embrace the hardships that come our way for his sake. In these moments, we find our true strength, our deepest connection to him, and our ultimate purpose. So our first point from last week was, A, we need to anticipate suffering for the truth. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It doesn't get much clearer than that. And then let's go to verse 13. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ... Keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. So our second point last week was to be, be joyful. A, anticipate. B, be joyful. We need to rejoice in the purifying work of God in us and rejoice in knowing our reward is great in heaven. The hope we have in the revelation of Christ and his future return to the earth should cause us to rejoice. We also spoke about how Partaking in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings brings us a sense of joy. The key here was, as believers, we experience a very profound bond when we endure suffering for the sake of his name. It is a remarkable connection we establish when we face the same animosity that Christ endured because of our association with him. And the heavenly appointed connection should actually make us rejoice. While trials and suffering may test our strength, it is rejoicing through them that reveals the steadfast 
heavenly-focused spirit within us. It's really the sign of a true believer. I like this quote from Spurgeon. He said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. So he's rejoicing in suffering. Verse 14 in, in our text says, um, it really hits home. It says, if you were reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I made the point that reviling is probably what we will endure today. Um, I don't see us you know, getting flogged anytime soon or really being beaten for our faith. People will certainly revile us, though. They'll revile us in this, in this post-Christian culture, specifically when we stand up for Christ. They will revile us when we proclaim his truth, when we refuse to compromise our biblical convictions, when we preach the gospel, when we call others to righteousness, and even when we ourselves live out holy lives. So we must, A, anticipate suffering and persecution for standing up for Christ, and B, be joyful through it as we share in Christ's sufferings and look toward the future hope that we have in him. And today we get to see. Um, consider the source of suffering. So C, consider the source of suffering. This is really an examination of any suffering that we might be forced to endure. We need to draw out the distinction that Peter makes between God's chastisement due to sin versus persecution for being a Christian and standing up for our faith. Let me say that again. We need to draw out the distinction that Peter makes between God's chastisement due to sin versus persecution for being a Christian and standing up for our faith. So look at verses 15 and 16, if you will. It says, starting in verse 15, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So on one hand, people experience suffering for being a sinner. On the other hand, you've got suffering for being a Christian. So Peter encourages us to consider or to make sure we understand the source of our suffering because the blessing he mentions in verse 14 is directly related to the kind of trial and suffering that is heaped on us because of our Christian faithfulness. He says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, that's a very specific thing, reviled for the name of Christ, then you are blessed. Juxtaposed to that, you've got trials of suffering because of our sin. Suffering that stems from unlawful deeds cannot be considered as suffering for the sake of righteousness. It seems like an obvious statement, but it does cause us as readers of this letter to ensure we put our trials in the right perspective. Peter lists four blatant sins. The first two, that, that of being murder and being a thief. Okay. These were capital sins in the ancient world. In fact, the two men crucified with Christ were both condemned and sentenced to death for being robbers or thieves. Matthew 27, 38 says, At the time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And I think it's a really interesting image to consider that here you have Christ, the perfectly righteous, holy Son of God, who knew no sin, being crucified for righteousness' sake, juxtaposed with the two men, one on his right, one on his left, who were being crucified as a consequence of their sin. There's a deep and profound separation between the two, and I believe Peter is pointing this out here in this letter. There is persecution for doing what is righteous in the name of Christ, and there is suffering for doing what is wrong, which does not merit or warrant any kind of blessing. 
The latter is simply justice and a consequence for breaking the law. So back to the text. He says that we are, may, may we not be murderers, may we not be thieves. And then next he says, he uses the term evildoers, which encompasses all kinds of crime that result in punishment in the name of justice. He used the same term for those who break the law in chapter 2, verse 14, when he talks about how governors are sent by God for the punishment of evildoers. So last, Peter's short list of trespasses includes being a troublesome meddler. Now, I, I, as you read this, you go, wait a minute, you're murderers, you're thieves, you're evildoers, and then you're troublesome meddlers. I think, wow, that's a, it's a weird one to throw in there. But I, I think it's perhaps Peter's way of emphasizing how important it is to continue to be someone who brings unity rather than someone who is contentious. As he's speaking to the church here, this letter is to the church, he knows the importance of ensuring that there is unity amongst the brethren in the church, making a clear statement that we are not to meddle into others, people's personal business without good cause. The word meddler could also be described as an agitator or a troublemaker. These are crimes against the body of Christ, and disrupting the unity of the church is on equal ground of that of being a murderer. That should sound crazy to us, make us take pause. Um, But meddling carries with it judgment and suffering like being a murderer or evildoer. All sin and unholiness is an abomination to God. Even meddling in other people's business offends a perfectly holy God, and suffering might be his way of purging that sin from you, separating the dross from the gold, as it were. In regards to the church body, once we start to gossip about one another, we can expect consequences for being that kind of person. Someone who puts their nose where it shouldn't be and stirs the pot. If you are that type of person and you might be experiencing suffering at any kind of level, you may want to take account of that and consider the source of your suffering. As a reminder, Paul said in Thessalonians 2, um, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. That's our troublesome meddler there. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. So we see that sin in any form, from murder to causing divisions in the church, comes with consequences, whether from ruling authorities or from God. These consequences are part of justice and are deserved. But the persecution that we should anticipate and the suffering that we should be joyful about is specifically related to our righteous acts and our godly behavior. So I want you to understand that separation. Look at verse 16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. And that's it. That's the distinction. If anyone suffers as a Christian, there's no shame in that. The way a a lawbreaker might feel shame with the outcome being punishment. By contrast, suffering for standing up for Christ as a Christian, that is proclaiming boldly that we belong to Christ, which is what the word Christian means, this produces a completely different outcome. It produces joy over our future heavenly reward and the blessing of God. But it also, as discussed last week, purifies the church. Peter is being very specific and wants us to understand the difference. I also want to make a little distinction here um, in terms of general trials and persecution. These two are also very different. We, We will face all sorts of life trials. They could be health trials 
or relational trials or financial trials, um, trials that come in all shapes and sizes. And we need to respond each one with a biblical mindset and attitude as things come up in our lives. And these two can absolutely be God's way of refining us. But those life issues or trials are very different from the fiery trial or the fiery ordeal that Peter is talking about in this context, which is the direct suffering um, we can and will experience for making a bold proclamation of the gospel. So in our context, let's go to uh, verse 17. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? To break this down, let's start with uh, the first half of that verse. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Well, the household of God is the church and the body of believers that exclusively follow Jesus Christ. Peter said it earlier in chapter 2, verse 5. He said, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Where Paul referred to the household of God verbatim in 1 Timothy 3.15, if you want to turn there. 1 Timothy 3.15. He says, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Uh, I I think that's a fantastic um, way of describing the church, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. It's a very clear definition of household of God. It is the church of the living God and the pillar of the support of the truth. We've been talking about persecution for standing up for the truth, and Paul makes it clear that that a key attribute of why the church exists is not only for worship and teaching, but we collectively, as one united church, are the pillars and supporters of the truth. The church, the household of God, is so necessary in today's progressively immoral culture because we are the keepers, the pillars, and the testimony of truth. We, the household of God, are the ones who must stand up for the objective truth as found in his word. It's been fortunate to, uh, I've been fortunate, is Shannon here? Yeah, he is, Shannon. There he is. So I did get to see the Essential Church, a little in advance screening, um, and um, I won't give any spoilers, Shannon, so don't get mad at me. But this will be my commercial, so you can give me 20 bucks later. Um, but it's fantastic because it talks about um, this the exclusivity um, of the gospel and the responsibility that we have in the church as a church body. Um, To be part of the essential church or to be part of the household of God, we have an obligation to stand up for the truth. And that's really what the documentary is about. And and I hope you um, make sure you take advantage of seeing that. Um, And it's also a great segue, or at least this chapter in 1 Peter Um, four is a great segue into really what the Essential Church documentary is all about. So it's fantastic. Well, back at our text, the first part of of verse 17 says, it's time for judgment to begin. So what does that mean? This judgment is not condemnation, but the purging and purifying of the church by the loving hand of God. It is what our suffering, what our trials ultimately produce in the church. It's purifying and refining, separating the good from the bad, purging the church from sin while producing faithfulness through trials. 
uh, time for judgment to begin is the ongoing judgment that God uses to continually sanctify the church. He has been doing that since the beginning of the church, and he continues to do it today. I found this quote in my studies. Most, it says, most people who go to church believe it is a safe place, perhaps the safest place, when it comes to threats of judgment from the Lord. It's almost like climbing aboard the ark. Once you're safely inside, you're untouchable. But that's not true. Frankly, it's a foolish and dangerous notion. Just because you are in church or something you call a church where Jesus' name is invoked and songs are sung about him does not mean you're safe against threats from God. In the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, the Lord makes some very strong direct threats against churches. A church is no safer than the world in, than the world in that regard, and its transgressions often demand a swifter judgment. So God deals with his people in the church, and sometimes suffering is his way of purging the sin from the church and refining us. God's judgment on the household of God is at play. Spurgeon said, when God begins to test that which professes to be gold and silver, who can say that he does not begin his testing at the right place and with the right material? He starts his judgment with us. That's part of his fatherly discipline of our adoption, and the outcome is our continued sanctification. God demands purity in his church, and we need to consider where our suffering comes from. Is God's judgment on us because of sin, or is it from our persecution or the reviling, as verse 14 says, that causes us to suffer? When I spoke in uh, Steadfast a little over a year ago, it was the first time I spoke in here, um, I, I talked about our brand identity. I was kind of tying it into my career at Disney um, with brand identity for believers. And I think that overlaps what we're talking about here. Our identity should be our steadfastness, our immovable, unwavering commitment to the truth. That's how the world should identify us. And I used a quote back then, which is a great reminder, um, as I, I guess the topic uh, of that message was, what is our testimony in a pagan world? And I referenced this quote. It says, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. So hypocrisy is one of the greatest deterrents of Christianity. That's why waffling on the truth, the foundations of Scripture, is so dangerous. Well, on one hand, if we live with integrity, some in the world will see the light of truth in us and and be drawn to it. And on the other hand, there's a larger part of the world that will reject it and hate us for it. We know that the ratio is larger for those against us than that are for us. Even Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14 says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So we can be a testimony, um, and that is our ultimate goal, to save the remnant, to save the few that are going to walk through that gate with us. But um, there are a lot of people in this world who are going to reject it, obviously, and they're going to persecute us. So as we consider, if we're beaten down by the world because we don't walk the walk and get caught up in the same, and we end up getting caught up in the same sins of the world, then our suffering is consequential and deserved. But if the suffering comes from living righteous, holy lives and proclaiming the name of Christ, then we share in Christ's sufferings, and therefore we can rejoice in the affliction because of the blessing that comes with it. 
The latter half of the verse in uh, verse 17 is laid out as a comparative question. He compares the current suffering of believers with the eternal suffering that unbelievers will face at the final judgment. Peter says, and if it begins with us first, so, and if it, meaning judgment, begins with us, or the believers, first, what will be the outcome for those who do not, do not obey the gospel of God? So basically, Peter is saying this, if God is purifying us believers at present, those who are faithful and have an effective testimony to the gospel now in this day, and we suffer for it, it is infinitely better for his people to endure the sufferings with joy than to later have to endure the eternal torment in the future that unbelievers will face. You see, God will condemn the ungodly, the unsaved, in a devastating wave of judgment. But for those who are faithful, especially those believers who have proven faithful through suffering for Christ's sake, there will be great joy and joy eternal. So we need to consider the source of our persecution. And as we've discussed, the source of suffering can come from three different places. It can come from one, suffering can be a consequence for sin, just like breaking any law when we break the law of God. He will issue the consequences to the measure he needs to in order to continue to refine us. Two, we can suffer through natural causes, which test our faithfulness. This is where one might face health issues or financial issues, relational issues, the things I mentioned before. By going through these trials, we have an opportunity to be a light to the world, as well as spiritual refinement and sanctification as we remain faithful and steadfast. But then the last one is we can suffer for standing up for Christ. This is persecution when the world hates us and reviles us for being, as Peter clearly says, a Christian and not backing down or showing any shame for our commitment to him. So as we get to verse 18... Peter quotes from the Septuagint, actually, the Proverbs eleven thirty one, And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? To make that clear, followers of Christ, the righteous ones, can expect to face the trials of unjust suffering, the refining process of divine purification, and the disciplinary measures orchestrated by God. Turn with me to Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 8. Hebrews 12, 7 through 8. This puts it into great perspective. It says, It is for discipline that you endure, but God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So this is part of the source of suffering, discipline from a loving father. Therefore, if Christians have to endure suffering now, what happens to the godless man? Well, for the unrighteous, the godless individual and the sinner, the retribution they will face in the form of divine wrath and judgment will exceed by far any temporary suffering endured by Christians during their earthly lives. So to take us to the final point, we need to first, number one, A, anticipate persecution, we need to, secondly, be joyful through it. And third, we need to consider the source of our persecution. And the last is, we need to dedicate our souls to a faithful creator. D, dedicate our souls to a faithful creator. Look at verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Bam. 
I mean, that's the conclusion right there. Knowing all this, we need to entrust our de- or dedicate our souls to a faithful creator as we can de- continue to do what is right. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Christians must do what is right according to the objective truth of our creator, even through suffering as, my, as, as it might be appointed through the will of God. But we must, suff- we must stand up for um, for we must stand up for Christ no matter what the cost. In studying this text, it's, it's made me consider the weakness of, of many churches that exist today. There are many, many probably within a 30-mile radius of, of us here. And I wonder, what will they do when the persecution really hits? Will they scatter like cockroaches when the lights turn on? Or will they stand faithfully for the objective truth of the gospel? But when we see so much capitulating by certain churches... And, and so much giving into the world system and so much compromise, I think it's going to be really hard for them to stand strong on that day when persecution really comes to them, which, which makes me incredibly thankful for this church, for the solid teaching we have here at Grace Community Church. The leadership here has proven consistent for decades. Um, John's been in the pulpit for over 50 years, and um, he's refused to compromise or cave into the world, to what the world feeds us. You'll see this when you watch the, the documentary, uh, The Essential Church, that the, of how we stand for the truth. Um, and then as we get into a granular details of each church member here, are, are we ready to take on the church's stance for the truth individually? Will we individually, each person here, willingly welcome any persecution that comes our way as we profess Christ? Can we collectively commit to this? Can each of us refuse to compromise and not conform to the current cultural post-Christian narrative? It's so easy to do to get caught up in it like a dead fish. You're you're just floating down the stream versus going against the current for Christ. I saw this in my own um, career. Um, One reason I decided to leave was um, during the uh, whole... Florida bill, don't say gay bill, some of you are familiar with. Essentially, that bill was um, to ensure that teachers from kindergarten to third grade in the public schools could not teach our children um, any topics on sexual orientation or gender identity. So it seemed like a pretty basic thing, right? Children's kindergarten to third grade probably should not be taught that. I don't think any child should be taught that, but that's at least what the law said. And, of course, everybody got up in arms about it, and I just cannot believe that it became an issue. You talk about Romans 1, the depraved mind. Um, So anyways, at at the Disney Studios, you know, we were trying to to fight against that law, Um, and uh, one of our executives, the, the leader of the studio, came out with a statement that said, the leadership team of the Walt Disney Studios is completely united in unequivocally opposing any type of legislation that would discriminate against our LGBTQ plus community. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm, I'm one of those leaders, and nobody asked me. Um, I, did they say, am I unequivocally united in, in this agenda? And uh, so I was, I was taken back, and I just kind of got lumped into that with everybody else. And um, uh, I, I, that's basically why I had to say, well, I, can, I have to step down from leadership. Um, everyone on, on my team uh, knows that um, I'm a believer and uh, 
But um, when you have um, a group of believers that, or I, I'm sorry, a group of people who are looking up to you in terms of leadership, um, I can, I, I had to stand strong that um, I couldn't just be that dead fish that was floating down the stream. Um, as a leader in the company, I had to take a stand and that's uh, what I, I had to do specifically, not only for my own testimony, but for those who know that I'm a believer in the company. Um, and uh, my point here is that all we, um, we all need to really take a stand against this progressive culture. Um, our society is, is going in a, in a direction that is satanic. And, and the question is, are you willing um, to take that stand? Um, I fear for the weak churches that I mentioned earlier that have already let unchecked sin creep into their congregations um, because when the fiery ordeal really comes to them, they will likely scatter as the judgment will be too intense for them to endure. My hope is that they are taught well enough to consider the ultimate suffering that will come upon them in future judgment if they deny Christ in persecution. But this is how God will purify his church and purge out the deceivers within the body of Christ. Only the faithful will remain standing. So that's my challenge for you today. Be faithful. We read Jesus' words in Matthew 7, and then in verse 21, Christ says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Some will claim to be Christians, many of whom will likely sit within these walls of this very church. But when the refiner's fire comes, they will not be able to stand against the heat, and they will be thrown away, the dross from the gold. That is incredibly convicting, um, certainly as I evaluate, even in my own life, my own sanctification, and as I, as I hope that's convicting for you as well. In our Bible study, the Placerita Canyon study, um, Brian was teaching, and we talked about um, the reasons why we don't share the gospel. And uh, we kind of narrowed it down to one thing. It all boils down to one thing. And you know what that is? Tim probably remembers because he was there. Anybody? What's that one thing? Do you remember, Wes? Maybe you weren't there. The one thing why we don't share the gospel. It's pretty simple. The fear of man, right? The reason we don't do it is because we're afraid of what people will judge us for that uh, they won't like us anymore because, again, the exclusive nature of the gospel. But Proverbs twenty nine twenty five says, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. So we need to trust in the Lord. We need to dedicate our lives into his hands. And I love this verse in Ezekiel 2, 5 through 7. Why don't you turn there? I'll give you a second to find that. This is all about standing up for Christ, being a testimony, being willing to share the gospel with the lost. Ezekiel 2, 5 through 7. Verse 5, it says, As for them, whether they listen or not, for they're a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words, though thistles and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, Neither fear their words, nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. So we as Christians have an obligation to speak the truth and to speak the gospel. 
whether they listen or not, is not up to us. We simply need to dedicate our lives to a faithful creator in doing what is right. We should not fear man. You know, I realize that these two messages are a bit doom and gloom, and I I hate to do that as we look at this post-Christian culture, and I don't say any of this to scare you, but I believe it is reality for us today and for the church. I think we will be reviled. We are heading into a difficult time, but this is not uncommon in the church. In fact, we should be energized by the time we by the times we live in because the opportunity we have to stand boldly for Christ has never been better. It's a very exciting time in history. Um, I was discussing this with a friend the other day that there are really three, I guess, progresses in society that have allowed the gospel to go out. The first was at the time of the early church when the Romans completed the road system. You know, that allowed messengers to go out with the gospel to all parts of the world because of the road system that was built by the Romans. Secondly, it was in the 15th century with the Gutenberg Press. Um, what a great invention to print the Bible, to get the gospel of, of the word of God into people's hands in printed form for everybody. Um, so you could do mass duplication of the Bible, and the Bible could go out and reach to every corner of the world. And this age that we are living in now is incredible with the Internet and digital media and what we can do. I think this is the third greatest invention. It can be used for evil, but it's a great invention for good, that we can get the gospel out around the world. I think of Grace to You. Does anybody here work for Grace to You? Um, do you, Do you know what the stats are? I tried to look them up, and the website didn't say anything. Do you know how many downloads are are happening it's in the millions right uh i don't know if that's daily weekly monthly probably okay subscribers do you know how many downloads by any chance i was talking to phil johnson about this a couple weeks ago and it's it's in the millions it's unbelievable what the internet allows us to do for the gospel of god so it's just great to get the expository teaching um, that our pastor Um, has been so faithful to, into so many hands. You can be anywhere in the world and access it and and hear the word of God preached. So we're living in an exciting time. So while I kind of have done the doom and gloom thing with um, 1 Peter 4, I also want you to be energized by the opportunity that we have as believers in this this current age. So in closing, I just want to remind you that suffering in some form or another is going to come, and we need to, A, anticipate it, and because righteous persecution allows us to share in the sufferings of Christ, and because our trials are God's incredible tool to refine us, we should be be joyful for it. And when those trials hit us, we need to see, consider the source, evaluating if it is from righteousness' sake or if it is God's sanctifying judgment on us for sin. And finally, we need to D, dedicate ourselves to the Lord's work to stand up for Christ no matter what the cost. And as Peter concludes, therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. All right, so let's pray. Lord, what an amazing reminder of what it means to be a Christian, a believer, that we're to stand firm and boldly proclaim your truths, even in the midst of suffering, Help us to be faithful. Help us to be a testimony to the world of what a follower of Jesus Christ looks like. Continue to refine us into the body of believers that you intend us to be. 
that you will continue to purify your church and sanctify each one of us, that it may result in your glory. I thank you for this time. I thank you for this body of believers. Go with us now as we uh, hear the preaching of your word in in big church, and uh, we do thank you for our time together. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you.